welcome to What Is My Podcast About? Uh, this is a podcast where every episode we take a deep dive into kind of a different topic, discuss it ad nauseum until we can kind of decide for a fact whether or not this is what our podcast is going to be about. My name is Peter Akerley. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Grace. Hello. And Keith Ramsey. Hey. This episode, we are going to talk about Game of Thrones. You guys are both aware of Game of Thrones, right? Like, you know what it is? Uh, sure. I mean... You're making I, me real confident here right now, Matt. I'm, I'm gonna have to rely on you guys to do most of the talking for this one. Because, uh, the last bit I've watched was good old Jamie Lannister passing out in a tub with Brienne of Tarth after losing his hand back in season three. Okay, so we got some hot takes on the most recent episodes. Good to know. Although I did catch up with a bunch of season recaps, so I know generally what's going on, but I'm still a little iffy on a lot of things. Cool. I kind of feel like we should get Matt to do the recap for this episode. (laughs) Uh, You're familiar with Game of Thrones, though, Keith? I've been known to dabble. So, Matt, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you don't have a super specific topic prepared to talk about today. Not really. Cool. Keith, did you have anything you wanted to talk about? So, pretty much what I want to focus on for this one is the characters. Kind of like the core of what Game of Thrones has always been is these characters and these situations. And then also tied into some of the prophecies and foreshadowing that is both present in the books and the TV show. Absolutely. And I kind of want to talk about a couple things. Main thing I want to talk about is kind of an alternate universe that we could have gotten in the show if they had have taken it just a slightly different way. And I also just kind of want to talk about the nature of adapting one work of art to a different medium, in this case, books to TV. Let's kind of jump right in. So shall we start by recapping Game of Thrones for anyone who is listening to this podcast without ever having watched an episode of Game of Thrones? My understanding is that would take a while. Uh, Not a full recap, for the love of God. (laughs) Matt, give us a summary of what happened in Game of Thrones. We have an hour, not a month, Matt. So just what you know for a fact happened. So the uh, people up north, the Starks, are always scared that winter is coming, that something bad's going to come from the north. So we start seeing with good old uh, Ned Stark beheading some dude who ran away from his position. Yep, that absolutely happened. So far so good. And uh, the houses, oh my god. What? I only know the Starks, the Baratheons, the Lannisters. Well, let's just hit the big story beats. What are the big things that happen okay. from there? Okay, so wise? Lannisters betray Starks a lot. Starks get the shit end of the stick over and over and over again. Yep, all of that definitely happens. There are some Targaryens on a different continent known as Essos because it's to the east and Westeros is to right. the west. Southeast to the south. Southeast to the t- south and the... the free to the north. The very popular Khaleesi. The uh, Mother of Dragons and all of the Dothraki. Yep. I remember them. Keldrago. Keldrago. Daenerys has a whole plan about taking back Westeros. She amasses an army over in Essos for so much time. It's just spent amassing an army and trying to free Essos so that she can come to Westeros and free Westeros. And when you think about it, from the recaps I've seen, not much really happened with her like she gained the trust of the dothraki she freed some slave armies her dragons grew up she there was a war over there and she left the way i kind of see it is everything that she does over the course of a season could have easily just been a single episode dedicated to daenerys that is kind of the nature of the show for the first six seasons is 
it's a lot of content spread out and divvied up where they spend only like a minute of each episode focusing on a specific plot line because they want to jump around and cover everything simultaneously. And then we hit the fast forward button for like the last three seasons. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. It just runs through everything that's left to be done because they've got a contract and they're going to finish up by season eight. By God, I tell you. And from even the recap, I felt that season eight was incredibly rushed. So Khaleesi comes back to Westeros. She starts her conquest, Is puts a pause on her conquest because the White Walkers, which are essentially ice zombies from the north, start coming through a giant ice wall that they destroyed and they start to attack the lands of men. The Targaryens and the Starks work together to stop these ice zombies. God, I already feel like this recap is running so long. Ice zombies die, the Targaryens and Starks take over, and then the Starks kill the Targaryens because the Targaryens are apparently mad. Mad as balls. That's It's a whole thing. We also find out at one point that Jon Snow is technically a Targaryen, even though he's been raised as a Stark, and he kills people and then gets banished. It's a whole situation, and I'm sure we'll <laughs> discuss it in further detail. Once we get into the podcast. But if you want to know what happens in Game of Thrones, uh, there's three words you need to keep in mind. Death, sex, and slavery, really. Like, that's the main things that happen in that show, just well, sporadically I'd throughout. I'd also throw in betrayal. It's like, betrayal yeah. happens every episode, essentially. Yeah, betrayal as well. That's a, that's a solid point, Matthew. But those, You're such those, a wise scholar. Yeah. <laughs> those, points, those points fully match your expectations, right, Matt? You have nothing to disagree with there? Nope. Not cool, that's your experience with Game of Thrones, And right? also Sansa. I hate Sansa. <laughs> All right, well, let's kind of jump in, and Keith, I'm curious to see what you have to say about the different characters, so let's let's talk about some characters. Uh, so, the kind of the idea that I had going into this was, it's always been a debate, TV show, book-wise, that who is the main character. Yeah. And, and as the series goes on, there's very clearly very prominent characters. So, the ones I came up with, which are very central to the plot even though there might be some debate on those and you could say it's because the tv show where it went further there was obviously favorite characters for example even though as much as i love davos in the tv show in the books he's not that big same no. with braun braun is there for like probably like five to seven chapters with Tyrion, and he's a side character who gets mentioned or talks a few times but the actor that played braun and the actor played davos both did it so well that they end up being very central to the plot multiple times the ones i have listed for who i think important characters for the whole series we got John, obviously. Yep. Daenerys. Yep. Tyrion. Yep. Cersei. Arya. Sansa. Sorry, Matt. And Jamie. I can get behind those names. Yeah. And I won't debate the fact that Sansa uh, had several key roles through the story. I just hate her. <laughs> and uh, on top of that, the big debate really didn't end up coming down to John and Daenerys, the main characters uh, yes. for the series, even though the other ones play uh, quite major roles. I feel like for the longest time, even going back to season one, as soon as Ned went down and was killed off, I feel like a lot of people were like, well, come on, it's going to be Jon or Daenerys. They're really the two that fit the idea of what the main character is. Well, it comes back to the title of the series is A Song of Fire and Ice, and everyone likes to point out that Daenerys is the mother of dragons and she's immune to fire, and Jon has Snow as his last name. <laughs> you don't get much icier than Snow. Except, I guess, Hail, maybe. I never saw that connection. Never. <laughs> oh, I'd say that hurts, but also I'd be surprised if you knew both their names or knew those two facts about them to make the connection. You watch during this conversation, Matt's just going to drop some random knowledge on us that we don't even know. Oh, I would love it if that happens. Oh. Actually, in this chapter, they explain that. But what about Daenerys' uncle, Aemon Third? He was the truest of the Targaryens. Yeah. Now, let's not get our hopes up, guys. Uh, my hopes are set... Like, right at the ceiling right now, Mike. You're safe. 
Matt, not Mike, I don't know what that was. So, did you want to talk about any of the characters in depth? Uh, so there's a few characters I felt, uh, especially going into the last season, which I'm pretty much focusing on using examples going back. I found that most of those characters, even though uh, there was quite a bit of hostility online about who had a good character arc and stuff like that, I felt all the characters, even as rushed as the last few scenes were, were handled pretty well, and all the characters ended up logically where I would see them ending up. Absolutely. I definitely agree with that. Uh, so Sansa's storyline has always been about her kind of doing away with her childish ideas of what power is. and Yeah, because at the, the beginning relation. of the series, she's just, for lack of a better term, she's a silly little girl who's obsessed with marrying a prince so that she can one day become queen. And then she realizes that princes are sometimes just dicks, just complete and utter dicks. And she has just a long story of bad things happening to her. Until she gets to the point where she realizes, maybe don't wait for a knight in shining armor to come save me. Maybe I should be the badass that I was born to be. And she learns political intrigue from pretty much the best in the game, Cersei and Littlefinger, throughout the series. Yeah. Uh, and her story goes from her being trapped and helpless to relying on others to get help. Really, Tyrion's the only one who respected her in any sense. And she learned his political method. She learned Littlefinger's when he went to the Vale with him and then finally ended up in the north and saw like the ruthless, uh, ruthless and aggressive moves that need to be made as well, which she employed at some points. I would argue she kind of learned from Daenerys, but rather than taking on Daenerys' political methods, rather than learning from them, she just kind of learned what they were and then used those against Daenerys to her own ends, because she had learned so much from the others already. Of course, and when the show went past the books as well, just the way that Sansa's story was going... I feel both in the books and the TV show, I was never doubting that she was going to be the one that ended up running House Stark at the end. Yeah. It seemed like very early on that that was the end goal for her character if she made it to the end. Absolutely. Bran had no uh, direct claim to the throne, oh, the uh, House Stark that he wanted anyways. Uh, he was suspected dead for the longest time. Rickon always felt would probably die off. Oh, Rickon was just a death waiting to happen from the beginning of episode one. Well, the beautiful thing, too, is he, he named his direwolf Shaggy Dog, which Shaggy Dog's story is a story that goes nowhere, and he fulfilled that perfectly. Yep. John uh, never wanted any form of power, so He's... he wasn't going to take it repeatedly through the series gets power thrust on him and then he immediately deflects onto the closest person to him. It's like, yep, you get the power. It makes you wonder why he wasn't that good at dodging all those knives considering how much he dodged the power. Uh, and then Arya obviously also wanted nothing to do with any type of court or ruling power. She had one type of power in her mind and that was the power of steel. Uh, Rob had a failed experiment of becoming his dire wolf. So really, uh, Sansa was the only one who had the skills and the potential to take on uh, the House Stark uh, and rule it. As for Arya, again, her idea that she didn't want to conform to the norms. Uh, that idea was nurtured by Ned and the rest until she was forced to go overseas and learn from Faceless Man and just how gritty the reality really is. But she still didn't conform to their norms because she quit there, didn't she? Yeah. She's wild and untamed, and that kind of reflects in her story, too, at the end. She ends up going on to sail across the sea and see what's west of Westeros. And if you know how a map works, it's probably the other end of Essos. Yeah, it's probably Essos. It's probably, like, a shy. Yeah, a shy. All that fun stuff with the, what was it, the Dark City or something like that? And the yeah. Black Sea? Yeah. Where, it's uh, just, she's gonna find out. I'd love it if there's a sequel series, though, that's her, like, sailing west of Westeros and then somehow just, like, ending up in Europe. Not even, like, fantasy Europe, like, modern-day Europe. It's like, how the hell is this what's west of Westeros? Oh, so, uh, the, the world of Westeros, or what's the name of Plan Planetos. The world of Planetos is flat, then. Yes, of course. To clarify, Earth is not flat. 
Planetos is absolutely flat. flat. Or it's just Russia if she sails west and gets to Europe. Matt, I don't know how to break this to you. There's no ocean between Russia and Europe. I know. Yes. Which is where your analogy falls apart, kind of. Ah, but my plan is that she fly. She sails from the west, from Westeros to the west, and lands up at the west coast of Europe. So she's actually flying, uh, sailing, sailing from Canada, and the globe's just inverted. Ah, I mean, there was that theory a long time ago polar that. Shift. Uh, what I was it? it? The world of Westeros was actually not magical. It just was suffering from nuclear fallout. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that theory. Uh, and uh, a little fun fact, too. The Westeros map is actually just a really uh, exaggerated map of the UK. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then, let's see, for the next character we have here, might as well stay uh, in that pool of characters as well. Uh, Tyrion, great story arc. And now, a lot of people did complain as the series went on. He just seemed to get stupider and stupider. I feel like his weakness ended up being family, just like every other Lannister, apparently. Every other character's weakness is family, not just the Lannisters. Not Daenerys. D oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Daenerys doesn't have that weakness, mostly because Daenerys doesn't have a family, except for the nephew that she... Really doesn't want to acknowledge as her nephew. I know, she's being pretty psyched about uh, what happened to her brother. We have, like, every one of the Starks' weakness is their dedication to family. I guess you could call it Sansa's strength instead of her weakness, but regardless. And then, yes, every single one of the Lannisters. Their fatal flaws, their dedication to their family. Tyrion misjudges his brother and sister and assumes they'll do the right thing, even though they've repeatedly proven that they won't. Well, the thing with Jamie is... Uh, a trusting of Jamie to do the right thing. I feel like Jamie does hit those beats. But for Cersei, Cersei knows him well. And I feel the issue with Tyrion wasn't so much that, aside from the decisions he made that can be viewed as stupid and the war aspect, I feel his character hit all the beats that I expected Tyrion would. Tyrion would trust his brother to help him end the war, uh, the battle before innocents are killed. Uh, he would try to save the people of King's Landing like he's done multiple times. He's never wanted that city sacked. That's why he got that scar. And in the book, he even got his nose cut off at the same time he got that scar. Yep. Defending the people in battle himself. The Battle of Blackwater. I mean, yep. it's also partially because of that personality that Jamie saw that Tyrion was innocent when he was framed for killing Joffrey. And so Jamie let him out of prison. Yeah, because he trusts his brother. He knows that his brother does, aside from Cersei, really, trust the family. Yeah. And even though he doesn't have that relationship with Cersei where he, like, he'll die for, essentially, he's not going to actively go against her up until this point. Uh, he'll do whatever he can to, you know, cause her discomfort or annoyance, but he hasn't actively, like, you know, plotted to murder her in any sense. No. Yeah. Even though she has, on repeated occasions, proven that she is of the opposite mind and will do whatever it takes to make sure Tyrion just ends up dead at the end of the day. She's multiple times plotted against her own brother. Yeah, she's crazy. And actually, with Cersei, too, I'd say out of all the characters I listed, Cersei was the one I was disappointed the most with going into this last season. Previous seasons and the books keep building her up as being female Tywin. Yeah. She has all the skills that Tywin and Tyrion have, but she can't use them properly because no one takes her seriously because she's a woman. And she's the one that ends up ruling the kingdom after all the shit hits the fan. She was the one that comes in on top of the chaos until, obviously, Daenerys shows up. But the last couple seasons, she's getting scenes of what her just standing in a tower and drinking wine. Yeah, it's her in the same tower drinking what I assume is the same glass of wine staring out the same window for, like, three seasons in a row. And it's her, like, talking to whoever happens to be standing next to her in that scene. Which is a shame, too, because the plot point that put her in this point, uh, this position, was when she blew up the set. Yeah. This huge plot where she gathered all this wildfire and had all of her enemies corralled into a single spot 
waiting for her trial, and she killed them all in one move. Slight, like, reaction to that point. Her son, who was king at the time, kills himself in response to that. I imagine that might have had a negative impact on her and might be some of the reasons... You know what? I'm not entirely certain, but she might actually be looking out the window he jumped out of, and that might be why she keeps looking out that window. She's like, shit, the stuff I did led to my son jumping out of this window. I think that would lead me to drink a glass of wine and stare at that fucking window for months on end. And uh, with the end, too, some people I saw quite a fit uh, complain about they built up this character of Circe to be strong and powerful and all that. And when she dies, she's just there crying, begging for her life. And I didn't have a problem with that. That felt like the character of Cersei. She actively puts on this hard exterior. But when you see her point of view chapters in the books, going back to that, you get that emotional in, uh, innards of herself where she's very concerned about things, her children, and that was just her breaking, essentially. Yeah. And uh, in the recap that I watched, I kind of chuckled at her death scene because I found it kind of funny metaphorically. Monster! Sorry, metaphorically, that she was crushed by the weight of the castle. <laughs> she was crushed by the weight of the kingdom. You know, I said he was going to say something that we didn't think of, and he just did it. He absolutely did. <laughs> I can't believe I called you a monster before you got out your point. You're still a monster for laughing at a character's death, but a monster with a point nonetheless. Uh, and uh, here, here's the funny thing. Uh, the opposite to Circe, Jamie. I feel Jamie had the best character development through the whole story. Oh, I love Jamie's development. Like him going from the Kingslayer. That's who his character was at the beginning. A man who served to protect his king and killed him because he realized his king was evil. And that has left him with a bit of a negative reputation with all of the people in the world. And him just kind of growing as a person and becoming a better person. The loss of his hand is probably the start of when he starts truly becoming a good person. We see flashes of it throughout kind of earlier seasons and earlier books with his interactions with Tyrion and how he still kind of tries to protect Tyrion even though Cersei fucking hates Tyrion. We see this kind of brotherly interactions between them and then once he loses his hand and he starts interacting with Brienne and other characters around him, we kind of actually see him grow as a person and he becomes a genuinely likable person yeah. and a fan favorite to a lot of character and uh, it's, a lot of fans. It's even cemented early on that between Tyrion and the rest of Lannisters, Jamie's really the only one who treats him like family and has a love for him and at the same time too yes going in with that where when he loses his hand that's where he starts uh developing into a good character and you can even view it almost in a sense that Tyrion has a quote early in the series that wear it as armor and then they can't hurt it with hurt you with it and i feel jamie and actually most of the lannisters have that aspect to him where Tyrion takes the being called the imp and he takes that persona on of you know being womanizer and he drinks and all that Jamie doesn't turn to that stuff. He literally turns to embracing people calling him a traitor and an asshole and just embodies it and kind of owns it. Yeah. And when he's, you know, in the dirt going through all this shit and he sees Brienne going through similar harassment, being a female who wants to be a knight, and he ends up just kind of cracking. And we start seeing the real, what Jamie is, come out. And it kind of relates to what we see with Tyrion too, where when Tyrion stops drinking, the real Tyrion comes out. And when stuff starts getting bad, Tyrion starts drinking again. And Jamie kind of takes on those traits too. When stuff starts getting really bad, he kind of takes on that asshole persona again. Yeah. Uh, a good example of it is when uh, the Siege of Riverrun's happening in the later seasons. Where he d he wants to end this peacefully, but no one's taking him seriously. So he goes back into the asshole mode until he meets Brienne again. Yeah. And he keeps telling that. He ends up turning his back on Cersei and finally realizing, well, I made a vow. My vows are worth something. 
and heads up north to fight with them uh, in the Battle of the Night. I think he has one of my favorite character arcs of all. Just like his growth as a person. He, as you say, he goes up north to help in the Battle of Winterfell. Before the Battle of Winterfell, he has a moment with all these different characters drinking around a fire. And like he has that realization of Brienne wanted to become a knight. And he's seen what she's gone through because of that desire. And so he takes it upon himself to make her dream come true, knowing that she could die the next day. So he knights her right then and there, which, first of all, I love that scene because the what they're all talking about and they're like, oh, too bad there's not a king here. It takes a king to knight you. And I'm sitting in the room, I'm like, no, 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 you have a knight in the room. <laughs> knights Jamie can knight other knights. <laughs> the head of the royal guard is right there. Yeah. So he ends up knighting her, giving her what he knows she's been fighting for, helping save her from what she's been doing. Only to then, after the Battle of Winterfell, realize he has to go back to King's Landing because even if he realizes now how bad Cersei truly is, he still has to try and save her from herself. Oh, and the thing about that too is, there's a few ways you can view that. As soon as he said he was going back to King's Landing, I, first off, I think no one had any doubts about the fact that Jaime would be in King's Landing and share the fate of Cersei. And actually, part of me was like, are they actually going to get out of King's Landing and just kind of disappear? And like the whole thing about, you know, the Valonqar uh, idea of her being killed and all that stuff, is that going to be like something we never see because it happens eventually, but not part of the story? Jamie going back, uh, I personally viewed it as it's a bad relationship. It's an abusive relationship. Well, and he, he's the victim in this and he's going to keep going back to her because he's like, oh no, she, she can change. I can change her. All people said that, that was just him giving up all of his character development. And I'm like, no, that's a point that's going to happen. I found it as kind of the perfect conclusion to the Jamie Cersei story arc because even in like the first season, we hear Cersei talking about how Jamie and Cersei came into this world together. They have been together ever since. It's only fitting that when she dies, because there's a small chance she escaped to Essos, but to be completely honest, it was not very likely she was getting out of this season alive. Knowing that she's not getting out of the season alive, it's only fitting that she leaves this world right alongside Jamie because they've been together every step of it so far. Oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. And a lot, that's what I feel upset a lot of people because they wanted the comeuppance for Cersei. They but they want... also wanted the redemption for Jamie. And you can't really get both. You get one or the other. And a lot of people feel they didn't get either, but I feel it was a logical point for both of them. There was yeah. always the assumption that they were both going to die together. It's going to happen. And Jamie just killing her doesn't make sense where the story went at this point. In the books, it might be different. He might be the one that fully kills her. I always had a theory before the Night King got offed back in episode three that the White Walkers were going to make it to King's Landing and it would actually be like a white of one of her children that would do it. But I feel Jamie's character ended where it should have. It made sense with the plot. I wasn't disappointed in the story. I was more like upset that he didn't get that happy ending that he was working hard towards. But it was still a fulfilling ending to the storyline. And that's pretty impressive that I'm happy with the character ending up in a good place. When he started out as an incestuous child murderer, I this that's is good of, writing for you. Turning that <laughs> back, I'd argue that this is kind of the opposite and also perfect for the story. It's the opposite of what people were kind of begging for. People were begging for redemption for Jamie and comeuppance for Cersei, and in the end, what we get is Cersei finally kind of relinquishes the throne, realizes there's no way I'm going to keep this. I'm going to flee and try and live. She ends up dying, but she has that moment of her finally letting go of the throne, and that's what allows her kind of character act to end. And at the same time, we have Jamie gets kind of, for lack of a better term, his comeuppance for his actions as an asshole at the beginning of the series, where he finally, he has the moment where he sees Bran. Bran tells him that he doesn't hold anything against him because if Jamie hadn't pushed him out the window, Bran never would have gotten to be the Three-Eyed Raven. And Jamie would never would have gotten to that point that he was at there, because the war wouldn't have happened... 
and he never would have had his redemption. Exactly. Uh, so even though Jamie has kind of been forgiven by Bran, I don't think at that point Jamie has truly forgiven himself. You can see even in the scene, Jamie is still a little bit uncomfortable with what he did to Bran. So I think him going back and saving Cersei, it's kind of him undoing the wrongs of the past is he tried to take a life and failed in the past. This is him going back and trying to save a life. Sadly, he fails in this case too, but it's kind of a perfect close to his character arc as well. And in the same sense, you can also view it kind of as, even though he didn't save her life, he in a way did save Cersei. Because without him being there, she wouldn't have had that emotional moment where she like kind of feels bad about stuff. Yeah. And like, doesn't want to die because of the challenge she realized she made mistakes. But that's only possible because Jamie shows up and she's able to realize that because he's returned to her. Yeah, you could argue he didn't save her life, but he did save her soul, for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh, any other characters you wanted to talk about? Uh, so the last two I have here for what I have listed as the major important characters, John and Daenerys. So the thing I find the most interesting about this is I feel that most of the arguments have always come down to is John the main character or is Daenerys the main character? Uh, first off, George R. R. Martin's even stated that it's not a story about a main character. It's yeah. a bunch of characters coming together. But even if there had to be a main character, I feel like it would be both of them. We were literally... because. It's easy to say now, and it was hinted at for a long time, Daenerys was the final big bad of the series. Yes. And Jon ended up being the main good guy of the series. And they can both be the main character. We're just getting the perspective of the, the main villain and the main hero throughout the story as they both grow into that final battle form. Yeah. The Song of Ice and Fire is following both of them into their major conflict. Or you can take it that uh, the Song of Ice and Fire is Jon Snow doing the battle against the Night King, and then the battle against the Dragon Queen. I I like it as the fight between Jon and Daenerys, because even though Jon ends up killing Daenerys, you can't really say that Jon wins, because Jon is exiled for his crimes, in air quotes. It's really what would happen in a literal fight between a fire and an ice. They're both just kind of destroyed by the whole conflict. In the end, I would argue that John kind of gets exactly, maybe not a good ending, but it's exactly the ending he wanted, where he's no longer in charge of anything. Sure, he got banished and he was forced to take the black, but if you watch the last, like, scene of the series, I don't think he's a part of the Night's Watch. I think he's going north with the Free Folk, yeah, and he's just joining yeah, the Free like, Folk. He was discharged from the Black Watch, because essentially he died in service right yeah yeah your, wa your watch has ended so he is free from the uh, yeah. value and he made. never rejoined them he just went up north alongside them well the, the problem i had with that whole thing was it was really what the unsullied they were like he has to be punished send him north and then and they, they left they left like literally when he's talking to the starks saying their goodbyes the unsullied are on a boat getting ready to leave they just have to kind of stand it's like are they gone okay you can come back my argument about that is I think I think Bran knew that John didn't want to ever have to consider taking power again. I think Bran like using his power to banish John and to force him to take the black wasn't Bran actually trying to punish John. I think Bran was giving John exactly what he wanted, oh, exactly. which was his freedom and telling him to go north. Yeah, John has always lived his life by duty. The phrase that comes up multiple times is love is the death of duty and he has to make that choice. It happened with Egret. Ends up happening with Daenerys. The Daenerys storyline too. His romance with her. I feel like it could have been so much better if it wasn't rushed. And it yeah. would have had more impact. And then it just kind of made him whiny in the last season. It's like, my queen. My queen. You're my queen. Like, that's all he was yeah. saying. And even before he stabbed her, like, you're my queen forever. Stab. With that, it was supposed to come off as like, you know, Jon Snow is sad and he's going up north to kind of just live out his life. I didn't view it as that because it was just so rushed. I didn't buy the relationship between them. I understood that, okay, the story was building up to this. It's supposed to be a slow burn up to it, but we're rushing through all the middle things that weren't that important, but it affected the relationship. So I saw it completely as John ended up getting what he wanted. He got to be free 
in the north like he always said he even says in a few episodes of this season that uh and torment agrees with him too that he was born for the north yeah the real north yes not the north the north beyond the wall because everything else is the south exactly all right, so did you have anything else you wanted to say about John and Daenerys? Not so much on the character. Well, I guess it does focus on the character development, but the big thing with Daenerys, obviously, is the snap, the Battle of the Bells. Yes. Yeah, a lot of people are... There's two sides of this debate that I see on the internet. One is, you ruined the best character. She would never do something like this. And the other side is like, well, they've been foreshadowing this forever. You should have seen it coming, so screw yeah. you. Both sides have their good points and bad points. Now, I'm not saying I fall into like the, it was foreshadowed forever. I feel like Daenerys being turned to you know just fuck it and burning down stuff always made sense we had visions of it so there was a lot of foreshadowing there i feel the issue with it was they didn't build it up properly they didn't take the time needed in the build and there was the moments there uh, earlier seasons uh she burns people alive multiple times yeah. especially it, in the ritual to bring back the dragon it was always just scattered moments like right like she'd do something exaggerated burn someone alive or she'd want to do something over the top in retaliation, but her uh, the companions, the people with her at the yeah. time, were like, "No, tone it down. Just, yep. just relax." Jora, cool. Masande, uh, Dario. Even surprisingly enough, Barrister Selmy. There was a lot of characters around her that were voices of reason, and. The be I th the thing I like about that is the show did a really good job of one by one killing off all the people who were good at talking her down from killing people. Before she got to uh, King's Landing. Yeah, and that's the thing. I can see all the pieces for that great turn, and I wasn't surprised, but I saw the pieces there building up to it, mm -hmm. but it was so rushed. And there's times, too, where the advisors couldn't stop her. Uh, another example of that is when she uh, was at Slaver's Bay, when she got the Unsullied Army, and yeah. she just, like, makes the contract deal with them. It's like, okay, I'll give you the dragon for all this army. I renege on the contract. You're all dead. Yeah. And it's said that she kills all the slavers, but we only see the slaves get out, which means... I'm pretty sure she massacred that whole town. And I, in the books, I believe, they even talk about how, like, that city was devastated. She killed a lot of people. I doubt everyone in that town was an active slave owner. There was men, women, and children in that town, too. Yes, but from Daenerys' view, if you live in a town that has slavery and you don't directly oppose slavery, it's the bystander point of view. You're just as bad and you're Guilty part of the association. And that's the other beautiful thing about how they have the point of view chapters from Daenerys throughout the whole story. Well, you, when you're getting a point of view chapter, you're getting that character's thoughts and vision of what it means. So you're not getting the negatives associated with it. That's why when the books come out, uh, when the final scene where Jon kills Daenerys, but I'm positive it's still going to happen, it's probably going to be from Jon's point of view, and that's when we're going to get that flip of like, oh, this is what's been going on really the whole time. Yeah. And because of that, there's, you know, all of her advisors are dead. She doesn't trust Tyrion anymore because Varys betrayed her. And clearly Tyrion knew about Jon's heritage. And so she knows Jon betrayed her as well. Because she trusts no one. Because yeah. Sansa, Sansa messed that up. Sansa couldn't keep a secret for five minutes that Ned Stark kept for 25 years. Yeah. So we've started talking about the final episode. And that's kind of what I want to talk about with my kind of idea of an alternate universe is just like... A few subtle changes in the last two episodes and how amazing of a story we could have gotten out of that. Like, what if Sansa died and the <laughs> secret, okay, Matt, the secret stayed secret? What if Ramsay was right? <laughs> what if we just kill Sansa in the first scene she has with Joffrey and then we never worry about that character ever again? We get it, Matt. You don't like actually, Sansa. Actually, I'll admit, uh, I hated Sansa at the beginning too. There was one moment where I was like, 
Sansa, if you do this, you're the best character ever. And that's the scene in the beginning where she's standing on the, the uh, what's it, the pedway where Joffrey's showing off Ned Stark's head. He's like, look at that, it's your father's head. And she looks down and looks and at Joffrey. And she considers like, pushing him? If she pushes him off here, she's the she, best character. She, yeah. she almost does. So I want to talk about essentially what I love about the last two episodes because there were definitely some flaws in them. But there's something I love about it and it's kind of the hidden story going on not so much the hidden story, but like the story that's happening if John doesn't do anything. If John doesn't go through and kill Daenerys, instead of getting the story of a mad queen who's killed by her closest, or the only person she even slightly trusts anymore, we essentially get the start of like an evil empire. We learn how the empire starts in the Star Wars series. Instead of prequels for the Star Wars series, which do a really bad job of telling any story, let alone how the emperor got into power, we actually get to see how Daenerys goes from a simple girl who's trying to help her brother get on the throne to a girl who realizes she should take the throne for herself because she's the only one who can do what's right. Seeing her get on the throne and seeing how her I ideologies have just slowly been warped over time to the point where she realizes that the only way for the world to be good is if, her, if she rules with an iron fist. And it's like, if Jon hadn't have killed her off, we would have gotten a really fascinating look into like how a dictator comes to be in charge, how they keep that power, and like all of the choices that they make in order to, for the greater good, for lack of a better term. Her goals of saving the world through world domination. And I think it could have been a fascinating series of just... Oh yeah, and even if they just gave, like say, gave her some time as a ruling party and not just died immediately, that could have set up some interesting dynamics leading up to John realizing like, oh... Tyrion was right, I have to end this. And you could even have that Tyrion did die, like Varys did. Both of them giving out their warnings, and then Jon finally heeding them yeah, a couple months into her rule. So first, Tyrion ignores Varys' warning, warning and tells Daenerys, Varys ends up dying for it. Tyrion ends up warning Jon, Jon ignores uh, Tyrion's warning, Tyrion ends up dying for it. Finally, the message is in Jon, he sees Daenerys actually ruling Westeros with an iron fist, all of the evil unsullied that are now just marching across the land, killing anyone who opposes Daenerys. That's when he realizes that she can't be changed, she has to be killed, and instead of having a story of someone realizing at the last possible moment and killing someone, you have the story of someone realizing too late that they helped a dictator get in power, and even if you kill her now, too much damage has been done to ever go back from it. And the interesting dynamic you can roll into that too is you could have it be like something that makes him fully realize too is she turns really quickly on the north. Like it could be like something that's like a stupid slight that she views from Sansa and it's like, that's it, we're marching north. Well, and you can even see what that slight is in the episode when they're all meeting about who to name as the new king to replace now that Daenerys is dead and they're deciding who to name as a king. And they're all like, yeah, sure, Bran the Broken. First of all, does Bran get a vote on his name? Because no. that's a really depressing name to give a king. Bran, you want to be king? Yeah, I'll be king. That'd be awesome. Bran the Broken. Uh, can we rethink the name? Nope, you're Bran the Broken. Uh, Bran, Bran the Wise? Bran the... Bran the Three-Eyed? Nope, Bran the Broken. So, during that whole scene, we see Sansa say, we've gone through too much for the North to ever bend the knee again. Uh, you can be king of the Six Kingdoms. The North won't bend its knee. The North will be its own free kingdom. Sovereign land as it has been for generations before this. And we get that whole line. And if that line had been said to Daenerys after she conquered Westeros, instead of being said to Bran, not even that exact line, just like a hint of her having that thought, Daenerys would immediately snap and destroy all of the North. And that would be the moment that John's like, what the hell have I let happen? 
how did I get all of Westeros into this position? Because that's the moment where he realized that it came to him, he had the chance to stop it, and he instead let nothing happen. Yeah. Or instead let everything happen. Pretty much. And with those last few episodes, too, there was definitely some scenes I feel they could have done a little bit better, because the last season specifically felt like they knew where they had to go, and the story up to this point has been felt it's characters acting naturally within the situation that they're at. And George R. Martin even admits that that's how he writes most of the character dialogue in the story. He realizes a character being in the situation with another character and how would they react. And that's how he goes about it based on knowing what their motivation is. But this last season felt like it was more of a, they need to get to this point, so we need to make them make decisions to get to this point. And that's why I feel characters came off as being stupid. Yeah, it's less of, here's the situation, how would the characters react in this situation? And more so, we need to get to this situation. How do they have to react in this situation to get there? regardless of whether or not the character actually would act that way. And because that other things ended up happening that didn't make sense or lowered or raised expectations in a weird way, the one I can think of the most is the death of the second dragon, where they're coming down and then the scorpion bolt uh, fired by uh, the Greyjoy fleet just takes it down. And mind you, it's a really cool scene, but it puts up this expectation that, oh, the dragons aren't even a guaranteed win anymore, which we then go into the Battle of King's Landing, where, oh, I guess the dragon was all we needed for this situation. The yeah. one dragon at that point. And the, the way they could have done that so much better, cut out that scene of the, like, you can even have that scene where the Greyjoy fleet attacks and maybe wounds one of the dragons, but wouldn't it have been so much better if in that final scene there where she's attacking and just before the bells start ringing, a scorpion bolt takes down the other dragon. It crashes into the city and then the bells start ringing. Right after the dragon goes down, the bells start ringing. So her friends are dead, her trusted advisor she can't trust, and her child is lying dead in the city streets, and you can see people cheering like, oh yeah, we killed one of them, but the bells ring because they're surrendering, and she's like, no. That could have been so reason. much better. So one thing I will say is, because I have seen a lot of complaints about the whole death of the dragon and how that whole situation handled, one thing I will say about it is throughout the series, one thing we're shown is with regards to one dragon dying to the scorpions, the next dragon taking out all of the scorpions is a dragon is never once been hit by something it saw coming. So they didn't know that the scorpions were there on the Greyjoy fleet. That's how the Greyjoy fleet was able to take down a dragon. The moment Daenerys realized the Greyjoy fleet was there, she got the fuck out of there and her dragon wasn't hit. Then when she actually goes to assault King's Landing, she's seen what the scorpions can do. She knows they're going to have them on every fucking tower. She's ready for it. Her dragon's ready for it. There's no chance in hell the scorpions are going to have the same effect now that it's a known quantity for her and Drogon. So that is one thing I will kind of say with regards to so many complaints about the fact that the scorpions took out Rhaegal, but not Drogon. But my problem is not with the scorpion bolts and the ballistas themselves. It's Just more of the they could have done it in a way that benefited the story and didn't make it that, oh, these things can easily kill a dragon to, oh, what are the point of these things? Yeah. All right. So... I just want to add one more thing before we get away from the dragons. Drogon, that was that that was the last dragon left, right? Yeah, yes. the black one. Didn't it seemed through the recap to me that it was a little bit plot devicey how Drogon liked Jon Snow and Khaleesi was like, okay, this is weird. Jon Snow was like, okay, this is weird. Oh, I mean the and part where he's making out with her and then the dragon like gives him the eyes. I, I don't know. I just saw some weird glimpse where like he does some uh, how to train your dragon type deals, like pulls his hand out to the dragon. The dragon's like, okay, I accept that. But then uh, at the end when he kills Khaleesi and the dragon shows up again, he's like, it looks like he's gonna kill him. But then. Like, okay, I respect you. I'm leaving now after I burn that throne. Well, I don't know if so, it was respect specifically. I 
I have points about this because there's two main theories I've seen online and one I think is a lot more likely than the other with the whole dragon destroying the throne. One, so the two main theories break down to either the dragon is super smart or the dragon is super dumb. The super dumb theory being that my mother is dead, there's a pointy thing inside of her, oh look, a chair made of pointy things, that must be what got her, which I don't think is the case. The belief that like the dragons are super smart, because it's repeatedly said throughout the books that like dragons are some of the smartest creatures in the entirety of Westeros yeah. and all of the world. Which means this dragon had a really good eye for symbolic gestures. Well, it also realized that even though John was the one who killed her, he wasn't what led to her death. It was her obsession with the Iron Throne that led to her death. And her obsession with breaking the wheel is like his last act. Him burning that throne is his way of kind of breaking the wheel that she was obsessed with. And finally forcing the world to move forward from obsessing over who gets to sit on a sword... Uh, sorry, a throne made of swords. Oh, I, I liked that burning. And now they're going to assess over who sits on a throne with wheels. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as for why Drogon liked John, I think that probably comes back to the fact that the in the entirety of the dragon's lives, the only Targaryen that they've ever known has been Daenerys Targaryen. So the first time they met John, the fact that he's a Targaryen and he's her nephew, he probably smells or they can probably sense the Targaryen blood inside of yeah. him. And that's probably why they took to him so quick. I guess that, that makes sense. Yeah, because it's always implied, uh, it goes in more detail into it in the books, that the uh, Targaryens and dragons have a really strong magical connection. Okay. So they bond to a rider. The rider's always a Targaryen. So it would make sense that they have some way to identify who a Targaryen is as okay. well. Okay, that leaves me with one more question. Since Jon Snow's only half Targaryen, he would he only be half immune to fire? Well, that's the thing, too, because there were so I many... I really wanted there to be a scene where he was, like, the dragon decided to breathe on him. and They blue-balled us so many times. Oh! <laughs> so many chances. Because uh, the first one was in the Battle of Winterfell. When the, the dragon, like, rears up and is about to breathe on him. And I thought, oh, this is going to be the moment where we're going to see he's going to like, just tank that fire and come out of it. The second one was at the end, too, where the dragon's going to breathe on him, but then destroys the throne. I was positive there was going to be a turning moment where they would have him get burnt really badly and be untouched, and that would be the indicator to everyone, like, oh, there's another Targaryen. Because I feel like even at the end of the series, no one outside of those 12 people that most of them died found out that he was a Targaryen. That was never spread well, amongst them. probably part of the reason why Bram sent him away. Could be. All right, so we've started talking about the books. Matt, to clarify, you have never read any of the books. Haven't even touched them. Alright, so I have a fun little game I want to play for you. It's called Really Fan Fiction or Real Fiction for Fans. I'm going to read out a plot synopsis of something I'm presenting as a fan fiction. And you're going to have to guess whether this is actually fan fiction or a part of the real books. Because the books do diverge from the show in a couple ways. Okay. I'm going to give you a prize. I, I'm going to come up with and give you a prize if you manage to get four out of five questions right. <laughs> Keith, you'll have a chance to answer after... Matt here. I have a feeling you'll probably get them all right because you've actually read the books, but just for fun's sake. All right? Okay. So, question number one. Or not question number one. Plot synopses number one. In an act of brotherly love, Rob Stark acknowledges Jon Snow as his true brother and rightful heir, or rightful son of Lord Eddard Stark. Sadly, this realization of the brother he never truly accepted comes to him after Jon has already taken the black and Rob has started his war against the Lannisters. So they don't actually get a chance to meet and discuss it. Do you think this is truly fan fiction, or do you think it's true fiction for fans? No, I think that's actually part of the books, because uh, what we did see of Rob before he died was that he did strongly value family ties. Keith? Yeah, that's true. 
That is absolutely true. Yes. Way to go, Matt. And in fact, in the books, there's this big conspiracy theory going on because we haven't resolved that plot line where this letter that's legitimizing John and freeing him from the Night's Watch is in circulation somewhere, as well as Rob's unborn baby. Yeah. Now, that one guy in the Black Watch that didn't like John just intercepted it and burned it. Oh, Alistair. All right, so, question or plot synopsis number two. In this story, presumably to save us from the unnecessary tension of the final season, John is not named Aegon Targaryen. Instead, Rhaegar's son who escaped with the help of Varys during the Battle of the Trident, is named Aegon Targaryen. He has lived his life in Essos ever since, where he meets Tyrion after the latter flees from Westeros. Tyrion ends up advising Aegon to go to war against Westeros. Is that really fan fiction, or is that real fiction for fans? I'm gonna say fan fiction, because there's names that I don't recognize in there. Keith? So I have one problem with that. That all sounded correct to me, but I don't think Tyrion was all, let's go to war with Westeros. True. I embellished a little bit there. He encouraged him, rather than trying to meet up and marry his aunt, to instead take the fight. He encouraged them to take the fight to Westeros because Westeros was a little bit messed up after the Battle of Five Wars, and Tommen Baratheon was in charge at the time and was a weak king. And of course, the plot being that the person he meets, who is identified as Young Griff, is actually the child of Rhaegar and uh, the Martell woman. Ella Martell. Ella Martell, uh, who was apparently killed by the mountain, but Varys says, oh no, I secretly removed him from the castle and replaced him with another baby and moved him to Esso so he could grow up and be fine. So there's a third possible Targaryen in the loop here uh, that has the Golden Company working for him, who is the army that ends up helping Daenerys in the last episode. So that opens up some ideas of where the story might go. Yep. All right. So, so you got that one wrong, so you're currently one for two. Okay. All right. Any questions before we go on to question three? No. Okay. Uh, so plot synopsis number three. In this story, Ned Stark realizes that the deck has been stacked against him. He is visited in his cell by Varys after being uh, accused of treason. Varys tells him what has happened and offers him a chance to escape King's Landing. Ned leaves and is ultimately captured by Lannister troops and killed, thus adding more fuel to the fires of war. Is that really fan fiction, or is that real fiction for fans? Now that sounds like fan fiction, because, uh, I mean, right up until the point where he was offered freedom and he was hunted down and killed out and away from the capital, up until that part it sounded exactly like what happened in the show. But then it diverted, and how would that benefit the Lannisters when they wanted him to recant. It didn't sound like something that would actually be in an actual published... Fair enough. Keith? No, he's right. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely Ooh. fan fiction. Thank uh, you. It is from a fan fiction entitled uh, Kingdoms at War, if you want to read that up. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Ned doesn't take Varys up on his plot because he knows it will make the situation worse, uh, and he is very much a man of his word, and he knows that his family's at risk if he does that. Yeah, and also the Lannisters wouldn't kill him away from the capital because they needed him to recant what he said. Well, at this time, too, uh, he was under the impression that both Arya and Sansa were being held by the Queen, but at this time it was only Arya, uh, Sansa and Arya was out in the streets. Right. Yeah. All right, question number four. So you're currently two for one. If you get the next two questions right, you win my prize. I'm so, not, sure, not sure I want that. It'll be fine, I promise. So, after all the abuse we see Sansa suffer at the hands of Ramsay Bolton... You can't blame the writer of this story for trying to spare her from it. In this story, instead of marrying Sansa, Ramsay marries a minor character who's disguised as Arya instead to earn his claim to Winterfell. The abuse still happens, but this time she's rescued by Mance Raider, the King in the North. Is that 
really fan fiction or is that real fiction for fans? Huh, that's a tough one. Um, from my recaps, I don't remember Mance Raider coming down from the north much aside from like the final assault. So, fan fiction? Keith? That's 100% true. That's Jane. Yes, that is Jane. She okay. is one of Sansa's friends from childhood who got written out of the story in season one. <laughs> okay, that's why it sounded so... She, she's there in season one and then just kind of gets written out uh, because Sansa is still in the veil and never meets Ramsay Bolton at this point in the books. Okay. All right, so you've lost your chance to win the prize. Although I don't think Mance Raider actually made off with her. The last we heard, something was going on and Mance Raider was captured, but we yes. didn't actually find out. And Reek or Theon actually ends up saving her, but Mance Raider does go down to save her. All right, so... Final question number five. You know what? I'm going to make it interesting. This is for all the marbles. I'll ignore everything that happened before. If you get this question right, you still win my prize. So, in an alternate universe, we get to see what happens when Beric Dondarrion trades his life to resurrect a fallen Stark. As is often the case with stories of necromancy, a much darker story is brought, uh, brought out. This story continues to the point when ultimately it leads to the death of both Podrick and Brienne at the hands of Catelyn Stark. Is this... Really fan fiction, or is this real fiction for fans? Well, it's got to be fan fiction. You said right at the beginning, just alternate universe right at the gate. Yeah, that was a mislead. That's 100% real what just happened. Well, <laughs> that is a part of the book. Here's Excuse the thing, though. Excuse me? We don't know that Podrick and Brienne are dead. In fact, we get Brienne later on in the story. She's the one who goes to Jamie and says, I need your help. I found Arya. Okay, it doesn't lead to their death. It leads to them being hung by Catelyn Stark. Yeah, they don't get hung. Well, we don't know about Podrick, but we know that Podrick gets hung. Brienne says something, and then Lady Stoneheart st uh, like, is like, she says something, and then the next thing we see Bri Brienne is she's with Jamie at River Run. So the implication is that she is going to lure Jamie to Stoneheart for revenge to save Podrick. Like, yeah. So they dabble in alternate universes in the books? No, that uh, the alternate universe was a mislead. Okay. That actually happens in the story. Okay. That is a real real life story thing that happens. Yeah, because there's a few things that are in the books that didn't show up in the TV show. For example, Lady Stoneheart never happened. So there's a lot of plot points that were missed with that, especially the Brother Without Banners going dark. That yep. means we have Beric until the end, which he's dead by book three yes. permanently. Yes, because he trades his unnatural life so that Catelyn can have some unnatural life of her own. Yeah, so obviously going in last season, like, well, Beric's got to die at some point. He's not going to live through this. He's been yeah. dead for like three books. <laughs> Another big one that we mentioned as well, Aegon and the Golden Company, was a plot I was really excited. Like, I, that's one of my favorite ones in the book going on right now. Yeah. Even though it's like the hints of like, oh, is he a real Targaryen? Is he a fake Targaryen? We know that there's the prophecy about a murmurs dragon, so a puppet dragon. That's pretending to be a Targaryen. The freaking Martell and Dorne conspiracy, which is another really good plot point that was just kind of swept under the rug. Yep. It was a lot of them just seeing a plot, a whole like story arc and realizing we barely have time for the story arcs we have. We're going to end up rushing the last two seasons. Let's just ignore that story arc and not deal with it and instead keep this different character alive. Like for instance, Rob Stark marries a completely different person in the books and she survives and just doesn't go to the Red Wedding. Whereas in the show... I that's another Jane. Jane Westerling? Yeah, Jane Westerling. Because Jane Westerling and Jane Poole? Jane Poole is the one who marries Ramsay. Yeah. She survives. The Targaryens, like, allow... Or not the Targaryens. The Lannisters allow uh, Jane Westerling to live, but, like, keep her as a prisoner to make sure that Ron doesn't have an heir out there anymore. Well, I, I remember there was, like, a plot where it's like, oh, no, she took the moon tea, which is, like, supposed to abort the, the pregnancy. But then there's hints that she's not taking it because she actually did love Rob, even though she was set up to marry him to cause the issue. And then blood running happens. She's not there, so she doesn't get stabbed like wife in the 
TV show. Stabbed right in the uterus. So that's why there's the plot of like, oh, there's actually a baby up there that's Rob's heir, and there's also this letter circulating around that is going to free Jon Snow from the wall, but oh, he got stabbed. Yep. Also, Alistair Thorne, not present in the stabbing. He's up north. He's at Hartholm, I believe, at the time of this. Which, boy, if it's anything like the TV show. It's just a whole bunch of fun little stories that aren't really touched on. Well, the other fun thing, uh, even though it's kind of off topic of the TV series, Alistair Thorne, the whole reason he's at the wall in the books is because he refused to support the Baratheons. He was 100% pro-Targaryen. And we always say, fuck you, Jon Snow. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to kind of my last topic I want to talk about. I don't know if you guys have anything else you want to talk about beforehand, but the last thing I want to talk about is kind of the act of adapting something from one work of art to something else. So in this case, the process of taking books and adapting them to a TV show. And like how that uh, Sam character at the end adapted all of their life's events into a book. Very, I, very on the nose Lord of the Rings Yes. I hated that. I hated that <laughs> entire moment. It was so tongue-in-cheek, which is not what the show is about. Look, I, I liked moments of that scene, but there were things, too. I was sitting there, I was like, okay, Davos being, uh, like, you know, the one in charge of the ships. Makes sense. Braun in season one had to had explain to him what a loan was. Yeah. And that Braun master, the master coin. of coin. That doesn't make sense because he doesn't have, like, a, mass, a massive amount of wealth, and yet he's now responsible for loaning money out to the entire kingdom. Ah. Uh, Regardless, I just, I hate that tongue-in-cheek moment of, I've written in a book, and I've titled it A Song of Fire and Ice, and Tyrion just being like, oh, I wonder how I fare in this book. I'm sure he treats me kindly. Uh, not exactly. Well, he must treat me unkindly then. Uh, not exactly. I don't feature at all. Yep, there's the one. It would have been better if it's like, I hope he treated me kindly. It's like, well, you spent eight pages describing your penis. <laughs> That's a part of the book, man. Yeah. <laughs> Be ready for that when you decide to read it. Great. All right, so kind of the act of adapting. And there's a whole bunch of different arguments out there about, like, what needs to uh, happen when adapting a book and what's kind of owed of the person adapting to the person they're adapting the work from. For instance, what's owed of the showrunners? What do they owe to George R. R. Martin when adapting his work? What do they owe to the fans of Game of Thrones? Uh, and that brings up a big argument about elition, which is kind of the intentional omission of different story points. This brings up a fascinating story that I found about when I was kind of reading up on the act of transposition and adaptation of different works. There's a movie called Greed from 1924 where someone tried to adapt a book to a movie, except he tried to do it shot for shot word for word. He tried to get every aspect of the book into the movie. The movie he finally shot and cut came out at nine hours long. <laughs> the studio was like, nope, let's cut that down a little bit. And he was like, fine, I'll cut out all the like, not super necessary scenes. He cut it down to four hours. And he was like, this is the movie you get. You don't get to cut it anymore. Here have this four hour movie titled Greed. That's the director's cut of Greed. Then he walked away and he was like, this is the movie you get. And the studio was like, all right, he's not here right now. We're going to cut that down further to two hours, and it ends up a nonsensical piece of trash because they <laughs> cut out every story arc of it just to make it fit in two hours. And so, like, the fact of the matter is, anytime you adapt a book into a movie or anything into anything else, you have to, like, intentionally omit some shit because otherwise there's just not enough time in the world to cover everything. Oh, definitely. And they were also set very clearly on, they want to do this in eight seasons. And you can see where they realized, oh shit, we don't have that much time left. Let's let's kill all the Dornish men. Let's yeah. So how fast did they wrap up the war against the uh, the White Walkers? Uh, that was... Depends episode... on where you want to start it. <clears throat> well, once the once the fighting occurred and uh, 
they had to realize, okay, we have to get together and fight this now. Oh, it, four episodes. It, yeah, okay. it was four episodes between them breaking down the wall and then being defeated. After a build-up over, what, seven seasons? Yeah, seven seasons at that point. Um, well, that, that, that's not so much with the adaption, but the interesting idea that everyone idea was, oh, everyone's fighting over the throne, but the main point is, the throne's useless, we gotta stop the Night King. And then they flipped it on you, and it's like, oh, the Night King was useless, the actual story's about the throne! So that also brings up kind of the opposite of Elysian, which is interpolation, and the fact that, like, we can't get everything from a book. Books oftentimes take the perspective of different characters, and we get to see what they're thinking, what they're feeling at different times. Yeah, in the books we even get their thoughts, which is hard to do in any type of TV or movie. So in order to kind of convey some of the information that we don't get to do, they oftentimes have to create whole new characters to fill the role of the one who passes on this information, or just give characters bigger parts. Like Davos, as we already said, amazing character in the show, one of my favorite characters in the show, he is nothing of a character in the books. And another example for that, too, is the character of Gendry. Uh, Gendry has uh, another sibling, which I believe is Eric Storm. Yeah. Who, their stories get mixed up because it's Eric Storm that is the one that Melisandre wants to, you know, bloodleach him and kill off uh, all the other kings. When Gendry had never left the brother without banners. He was never picked up by her. So him and Arya just kind of went their own separate ways because he wanted to stay with the brother. Yeah, and then there's also kind of other... Like, we've already discussed the fact that in the books, Rob has a wife, or marries a woman named uh, Jane, and they have a whole story. And then in the show, for reasons I haven't yet to fully understand, they replace her with a woman from Volantis and have her be his wife, and she's a combat medic, and she goes with him everywhere she goes. They just need to kind of introduce different characters. And so it's kind of this idea of when you're adapting something from one medium to another, you have to understand the idea that some things need to get cut, some things need to be added. And it raises the question of, like, what what is your responsibility as someone who's doing the adapting? And, like, people always talk about the accuracy of the work, but there's different degrees of accuracy and what exactly you're aiming for. Because you, be you could be aiming for accuracy of aesthetics, which is stuff like, what Buddy tried to do in 1924 with the movie Greed, where everything was exactly the way it was described in the book, and you end up with a nine-hour movie. You could end up aiming for, like, accuracy of, like, theme, where, like, you have a fantasy book or a series of books set in a world called Westeros, and there's magic and all this stuff. And I think that's mostly what they were going through in this show. They tried their best in the first three or four seasons to aim for, like, supreme accuracy where everything oh. was the exact same. Oh, of course. Season one is pretty much book one yeah. on wholesale. And then by the time they get to season six, they've shifted from that. And it's no longer about accuracy of... Or exact accuracy. They now start talking about just, like, they have to get all the themes right. So they cut out certain characters and they add certain characters so that you still get the theme that they're looking for and all the feelings that they're looking for. And, and to be fair on that, the part that actually I, like you would classify as the adaption, seasons one through six, where for the most part it was they had the material they were working off. Some things happened out of order. For example, going to Dorne to get their daughter, uh, the Lancer daughter, and then also going to River Run. That happens in reverse order because Jamie goes up to River Run, resolves that, and then is heading down to Dorne. In the, in the, in the t series, though, he goes the... Wait, no, it's the other way. Yeah, it's... He goes the Dorne and then the then River Run, Run, but in the TV show, he goes to River Run and then the Dorne. Yeah. 
Uh, so they did some things in order. They cut out the Golden Company plot almost completely, but they still gave him a nod in the show. So there's a lot of good things there. Obviously, the big changes were a lot of the issues that have happening were after that. So season six, Resurrection of Jon Snow, going beyond the books, Battle of the Bastards. That's where most of the issues people had happened because they're no longer adapting. They're more of, we have to make up the rest of this. And I believe, I can't remember where I heard it, but Dan and Dave, the showrunners, were told by George R. Martin, Three major plot points to move forward. Yeah. We know that one of them was how Hodor got his name. Yep. Uh, we know the other one was Jon Snow's parentage in his real name. Yep. And I can only assume that the last one is either Jon Snow is going to be stabbing Daenerys because she goes mad or Bran is the king. Yep. One of those two is probably the other big one. Which means, with the books, a lot of the concerns is like, oh, well, what's going to be different or same with the books? I feel like the books are pretty much going to be, for the most part, follow a similar path, but there's probably going to be big differences there. Yeah, obviously, Daenerys going mad, I feel like it's probably the other one he told them, and I feel like that's going to play the exact same, but more well-built up. But then we have a bunch of situations that are going to be a bit different. For example, one of the biggest uh, mysteries of the story is the Valonqar that will kill Cersei. And they didn't commit to that in the show. We never got a Valonqar. We never got who killed her. They had a nod to because when she dies, Jaime's holding her in her arms and she dies in an embrace, and the whole theory is that... She'll have the life choked from her by the cold hands of the Valonqar. Yeah. So that's something we're still going to get the payoff for. The, one of the big arguments is Zora High payoff, where it is Arya Stark that kills the Night King, when everyone's like, oh, it's got to be Zora High. But Zora High, the prophecy only says that he fights back the darkness. Not that he does anything beyond that. Yeah. You could even argue that in this in the show, John kind of fills that role. Rather than fighting back the darkness that is the, uh, the Night King, he's fighting back the darkness that is... Daenerys's madness and her dominance over the world. He does that in the same way that Azor Ahai forges the Lightbringer, which is by stabbing his sword straight through her heart. Yeah, and that's the other thing too with the Arya one. I don't think George R. R. Martin ever told them who defeats the Night King. No. It's just more go your own way. And the thing that's upsetting for me is I, I don't have a problem with Arya being the one that kills Night King, but I have a problem with the twist for the sake of being shocking. And it felt like a I lot don't of the like... twists during the season, the final one, were done just to be shocking and not so much for a purpose. So that kind of brings me to the final type of adaptation. So there's the three kinds. There's aesthetic adaptation, theme adaptation, and then there's just message adaptation. And message adaptation is literally like you have a rough outline of a story that you want to copy. And that's essentially what they did in the final seasons. And that's not because they didn't care about the story anymore. It's because they didn't have a story to care about exactly. anymore. But you see this a lot. Like so many people's complaints about World War Z, which was that it didn't follow the plot of the books. That's because it was a message adaptation and not like a true aesthetic adaptation. Yeah, it's a bunch of news articles and reports of what's going on, not a character story that we're continuously following through. Yeah, so instead of having adaptation of that, which is just a bunch of random different scenes pieced together to tell the story of a world war or an apocalypse with zombies, instead they take the story of apocalypse with zombies, they find some of the major points through the story that was told through World War Z, and they use that to build their own story within that world. And that's kind of the third form of adaptation. And people have complaints about all of them because when you go for an adaptation of aesthetics, it doesn't make for a good movie because movies are movies, books are books. You try and make a movie that's based on a book and you leave everything in and it doesn't make sense how different points work. You try and make a movie... Or it just drags on and it's just dull and boring. Try to make a movie based on books and leave out half the books. People complain about the fact that everything they loved about the book has been gone. So many people with Lord of the Rings complain about, oh, I don't remember his name, but he's the guy they run into in Bombadil. the list. Bombadil. Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil. I love Tom Bombadil. 
He's dumb, and I'm glad he wasn't included yeah. in this. No part, no part in the rest of the story whatsoever. He has no impact on the story. I'm just glad he wasn't a part of the movies. But there are so many people who are like, oh, I can't believe they left out Tom Bombadil. He's my favorite part of the books. No, it's good they left him out. Thank God they left him out. Can you imagine how bad those movies would be if they left in everything that uh, Tolkien had written? Like how they encountered Gollum right at the beginning. With the, within like the Barrow Downs or whatever. Yeah. Now that the series of Game of Thrones is over, and George R. R. Martin is still writing the books, has he come out and said anything about uh, how he's going to view the series? Because as things stand now, the TV series could influence how he writes the rest of the books from here on out. The possibility is there, but he's already been pretty straightforward about how he doesn't like to let things uh, motivate what he's going towards. In fact, he's even has a few interviews where he explains that you get to the point when you're writing any long story that someone's going to figure out the ending at some point. And what do you do at that point? Do you say, oh crap, I have to do something else and put another ending knowing that there's no foreshadowing going to that anymore? Like, oh, there was actually aliens the whole time. Or do you stick to your guns and go to the ending because even though someone figured it out, you put that work and ground floor in there to foreshadow this, and it's good that they figured it out because that's where the story's going. That's the point of putting the foreshadowing. And he falls into that category where if you if everyone knew the ending to the story, he's not going to change the ending. That's oh, yeah. the ending. And th yeah. that, that would be my respect to him if he sticks to his original plan, doesn't change anything. But that's my one concern is that maybe, just maybe, he'd be influenced enough to change something that uh, he discovered that the fans of the series liked that the show did or didn't I, like that the show did. I can't see him changing anything major. I, It's possible that he might change some minor things like the way characters are handled or the development and see like, oh, people didn't like that Arya kind of came out of nowhere to kill the Night King. And if it is his plan to have Arya kill the Night King, he might build it up a little bit better, yeah, lay more groundwork in what yeah, he has to do. It would have more of a description and more of a build up in the books. And like, if he sticks to his original plan, that would make me respect him even more. And on the topic of that, too, like things that we don't know if they're a definitive part of the story, Bran ending up king was another one that a lot of people were like, why? Because there's times earlier in this uh, season that it's like, well, why don't you're the new king of Winterfell? You're the last male st Stark heir. So it's got to be, it's like, oh, I don't want it. And they'll be like, then why was he so excited to take the king? And I was like, well, it makes sense. Like, oh, I don't want the Winterfell because I know I'm getting that down yeah. the line. It's like saying, I don't want this slice of pie because I know I'm getting a whole cake later. That's And there's so many funny uh, funny ideas, too, about this because it probably came off poorly because there was no build-up to it. But we now have to live with the idea that did Bran actively influence things to put himself on the throne at the end? Was that part of his plan? Is it even Bran is the three-eyed raven that's manipulating him? Was Bran really the villain the whole time? I just don't like how Bran essentially ruined Hodor's life and killed him just so they could get away in the end. I mean, it had to happen, though. It, it had to happen for him to survive. To be fair, that wasn't even, like, Bran ruining Hodor's life. That was... What's her name that was with Bran ruining Hodor's life? Because she was yelling at Hodor while Bran happened to be warged into Hodor. And that sent the message back. Bran wasn't trying to communicate that message to Hodor. Hodor was just trying to hold the door. And the girl was shouting shit through Bran at him back in time. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a lot of people are upset about uh, Bran. Some people don't really care. I'm fine with Bran because him going from, you know, the boy who wanted to be a knight, becoming a wizard, then becoming king actually is a cool plot and would be the standard plot in most fantasy novels you would read too, even though Game of Thrones tries to subvert that. But my God, some of the jokes that came out of that were so goddamn good. Yeah. My favorite one I heard was, damn, Jamie Lannister's king slaying game is so good he tried to kill the king back in season one. <laughs> 
I just, I love that moment where uh, they like try and subvert the genre and have it end with like Samuel being like, well, if it's truly going to be the king of everyone, shouldn't everyone get a vote? And everyone's like, ha, 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 ha. no. I love that moment. In this. Yeah. And then they like they end up agreeing like, oh, well, I guess brand because stories and all that stuff. And Framework agrees with this. It's like, come on, we, if we elect a brand that will break the wheel that Daenerys wanted to break, it's what you would have wanted. And he's like, okay. Yeah. But Jon Snow's still got to pay. Jon Snow's got to go to the wall. I assume you'll follow through on my wishes because I won't be here to ensure that happens. I also love how like uh, the lords are like, or not the lords, but Davos specifically is like, hey, Dorne doesn't really have a family anymore. Do the Unsullied want to be in charge of Dorne? You can have the lands and start your families. It was Highgarden. Sorry, it was Highgarden. Do you want the lands and do you want to like have families? And <laughs> Grey Worm was like, no, we don't want that. It's like, how rough is it telling a eunuch that they can have families? Also, on top of that, he immediately then goes into when they're voting on the king. He's like, I don't know if I have a vote. You have the power to give away Highgarden, but you can't vote on the king. Yeah. Not only that, the power to give away Highgarden, which has already been promised to Braun at an earlier point. Maybe they don't know that it's been promised to Braun. Well, but Tyrion like, has been in jail, and he's the yeah. only living person that knows about this now. But I do love the idea of like him giving it, uh, the Unsullied Highgarden, and then Braun like, coming up to Tyrion, he's like, hey, you promised me Highgarden. And Tyrion's like, uh, share it with the Unsullied, I guess? <laughs> you don't have to wait a generation. <laughs> no one's gonna stop you from taking Highgarden uh, high once they're dead. He's gonna be the one way that they'll be able to start their families. <laughs> <laughs> they'll marry women, and then those women will give birth. It just won't quite be a virgin birth. It'll be a brawn birth. <laughs> the only birth you need in Westeros. <laughs> oh. So, I, I do have one good question in the theme of it being Game of Thrones we're talking about. Yep. What is your favorite death from the series? Ooh. Matt, do you want to jump in first? Because I feel like you have less deaths that you know about to be a fan of. My favorite death was a group death caused by Arya that I've seen in the recap. Is when he, she essentially reenacted the Red Wedding, except in reverse. Oh, the Frey Pies? The, the, Frey, the, the Frey, Frey Pies. Pies. Yeah, that definitely is a good one. That's a pretty great one. I think, I think my favorite isn't even a human death. It's the Night King with his ice spear taking a dragon the fuck out. That was pretty phenomenal oh, to me. Especially because of everything it led to with the dragon burning down the wall with his ice magic. I think I think that's probably my favorite death. Oh, it's definitely a good one. Uh, for mine, you see, I have kind of two. One's more of a joke one and one's more of a serious one. My favorite joke one is definitely when Bronn saves Tyrion for the first time. And he kills that knight. It's like, do you have no honor? It's like, no, but he did. The guy just <laughs> threw out the fucking door. Yeah. Uh, though for my favorite death in the whole series, even though I'm not happy they died, it was still like the best death, I think. And that was Oberyn Martell and the Hound when he oh. just like, confess. And then he just like, cr like, of course, it seems to be the only killing move the mountain has, as we find out later, where you just crush the guy's skull because he tried to do that to the Hound. He also, apparently, that's how he killed Ella Martell, was crushing her head to death. Yeah, so it's it's the mountain's finishing move. I, I love that scene just because of how deserved it felt. Like, you have Oberyn just trouncing uh, the mountain, nicking him here and there, poisoning him to the point where he's guaranteed death, but then just becomes so cocky in, like, his self-confidence and the fact that I know I'm going to win this fight that he starts to lean over him just to give the mountain the chance to reach up, grab him, and crush his head. I loved that death just for, like, how perfect it felt. Especially with, like, them building up Oberyn Martell as being an amazing guy. And I love the actor. I, his name does not come to mind right Pedro now. Pedro Pascal. Pedro Pascal, that's it. I love him. I think he's a fantastic actor. But just, like, his whole death was fantastic. Well, in a way, it's a good way to be remembered for your death. Just like good old Sean Bean. 
<laughs> yep. Dies in pretty much everything he's in. All right. Uh, do you guys have anything else you want to talk about before we're done? No, I think that wraps it up. All right. So I guess in that case, we got to answer one final question. Is this what our podcast is about? Is our podcast about Game of Thrones? Please no, because my head hurts after this. <laughs> but we didn't even get into the theories of the Great Other and the Red God. There's too many names. I can't keep track of Or the of idea that the Drowned God might be the Great Other. Thought. We come back to this in two months' time once Matt has actually watched the show and read the books. <laughs> and then have Matt just counterpoint everything they've said today. We'll get him to catch up on the series. And then if the books happen to come up before he reads the books, we'll do the same thing over again. <laughs> Ugh. Uh, so no, I don't think this is what our podcast is about. I, that's a safe thing to guess right now? I would assume so. Alright, cool. Uh, if anyone out there does know what our podcast might be about, we always appreciate you sending us an email. Our email address is whatismypodcastabout at gmail.com. Those words are spelt the way the words normally are spelt. A's and what and cast and about, you know. Spell words the way you assume words are spelt, and you're probably right. Uh, you can absolutely find us on all major podcast apps. Uh, it's What Is My Podcast About? And thank you very much for coming out. Join us in two weeks' time to find out what our podcast might be about. And uh, I want to finish on one other note. I feel like there's something I want to immortalize in this podcast, and I'd like to give a thank you to our first ever email. I'd like to honor Greg Oliver as being the first email ever to What Is Your Podcast About? And will live forever as the secret fourth member, I guess, in this podcast that we'll always remember. Even though I know it's probably a made-up name. That's clearly a made-up name, and it's one of you two, isn't it? Um, I'm not saying anything. I'm not Greg... What did you say? All... Oliver. 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 I am not Greg Oliver. I don't even like olives. He means not you two? Nope. nope. Oh. <laughs>